Good evening. <clears throat> we'll go ahead and begin tonight. We're in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. And just four more chapters. And we'll be done with Matthew. So Matthew chapter 25. And we'll read uh, verses 1 to 30 tonight. Matthew 25 verses 1 to 30. There it says, The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and Lord, we pray that as we, Lord, meditate on these passages tonight, Lord, that we would be mindful that, uh, Lord, You are <clears throat> our Master, Lord, You are the Bridegroom who is coming. Yes, currently, uh, You are in a distant country, uh, in that You are not visibly and physically present with us, and this is the time of our sojourning, Lord, when You have entrusted to us. Lord, various gifts and talents, Lord, that we might use them for your glory and Lord, for the good of 
your church and the building up of your kingdom. Father, we pray that we would not be like those foolish virgins or, Lord, like those that wicked slave uh, who were not prepared, who made no use of the good things that you entrusted, but rather, Lord, that we would be those who are faithful and wise, Lord, the prudent, uh, who are in this present world, but who are living for the world to come. So, Father, help us uh, to have this discernment, and Lord, to live in a manner that is worthy of you, Lord, that we might be found as faithful and wise slaves. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 25 uh, is really a continuation <clears throat> of what Jesus has been teaching in chapters 23 and 24. Uh, at the end of chapter 24, he is urging his own disciples of the need to be ready for his second coming. No one knows the day or the hour, so there is then the need for us to always be ready for the coming of Christ. We know for certain that Christ will return, but we don't know for certain the exact day or the exact hour. So those wise, faithful servants are those who are always prepared for the Master's coming, who are committed to doing His will and doing those things that are pleasing to Him, so that whenever He returns, they are found doing that which is pleasing to their master, and they will be commended by the Lord. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be a wicked and a lazy servant who sees the delay in his master and then believes that he can live a carefree, a loose life, an immoral life. He can squander his days away, squander his time away, squander whatever the master has entrusted to him on his own pleasures, and then he'll still have time to get things in order before the master comes. This is a very foolish and wicked way for a person to live. And these two parables that Jesus uses here are illustrating this fact and this reality, right? Bringing this forward uh, to show this contrast between the wise and the foolish so that we would be wise and not be foolish, right? That's the point that he's making here. So the first one is the parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the ten virgins. He says in verse 1, <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Here, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. He's giving us an illustration or a teaching about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's going to be manifested both in this present life, this present world, and then also what will happen on the day of judgment and in the life to come. Okay, so it is relating to these two components, both the kingdom of heaven now and what our life is like now in the kingdom of heaven, and then what it will be like in the life to come, right? At the second coming of Christ, when we enter into the eternal state or into the life to come. Here, the kingdom of heaven is comparable to ten virgins. Now, we know that these ten virgins, five are foolish and five are prudent. But all of them, in some capacity, are associated with the kingdom of heaven, right? All of them are making some uh, claim to the bridegroom. And we know at the end, the foolish virgins who are left out, they are calling him their Lord. They are calling him their Lord. So I take it then that this is describing the visible state of the church in this present life. That the visible church, those who associate with Christianity, those who attach themselves to the church or to a church in some way, shape, or another. This would be the visible church. And in that visible church, there is always going to be a mixture of true and false. Both true churches and false churches. There are some churches that are good 
true churches, and there are other churches that are completely corrupted and false. But then even within the true churches, there are going to be a mixture of true believers, and then there will also be false believers, false brothers, who will come in among us, who will come in even to those good churches. And yet, what they are, the true and the false, will be manifested both in this life, but also primarily on the day of judgment. Okay, so that's the way I take it, that the visible church during this present life and then what will be manifested in the age to come. And here there is this mixture of wise and foolish in this life. There are some who claim to be Christians. They say that Christ is their Lord, and they mean that sincerely and truly. And this is the wise. Then there are those who claim to be Christians, who say that Christ is their Lord, but they do not mean that with sincerity, and these are the foolish virgins. Matthew 13 In Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50, this is similar to what Jesus taught here in the parable of the dragnet. 1347, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish in containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there it is like a dragnet that gathers fish of every kind. Some fish are good and some fish are bad. And as the gospel goes forth, there are people gathered in in this way. Some are good, they're sincere, they're true believers, but then others are bad. A clear example of this would be even the disciples of Christ. Some were good, the 11, and then one was bad, that being Judas Iscariot. And then even in the early church, we know that there were some that were good, such as uh, Stephen, such as Barnabas, such as those kinds of men, and others that were bad, such as Ananias and Sapphira. Right? This is the way it is, and this is the way it always will be. So here, the wise virgins are true believers, and the foolish virgins are false believers, but those who attach themselves to the church in some way or to Christianity or to Christ in some manner in this present life. Then verse 3, it says, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamp. Here, the fools are distinguished from the wise. And the way that they're distinguished is that the one... The wise, they're prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. They have oil in their flask. They're ready so that if the bridegroom is delayed and their lamps begin to run low on oil, then they have a ready supply so they can fill their lamps back up and so that they're always prepared and ready for the coming of the bridegroom. The foolish ones, they only take the oil that is in their lamp, but they have no reserves. They have no flask of oil. They're not prepared for the delay in the coming of the bridegroom. And then whenever he is delayed and their oil runs out, then they have no supply. They're not prepared. They're not thinking. They're not being careful and cautious about these things. They're not making the necessary provisions that must be made in order to be ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And so they are distinguished one from the other. The wise are prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. The foolish ones are not prepared. The wise 
they know of the coming of the bridegroom and they're making use of the means necessary so that when he comes, they are prepared. They are ready for his coming. And this is comparable to us living this present life for the life to come. This is the way that we have to be. We live here in this world. We live in this present life. There are things associated with this life that we must give our time and attention to. It's unavoidable. We have to do that. However, a wise believer, a true believer, while he must tend to various things in this life, what is always at the forefront of his mind, right? What is he always keeping in his eye and pressing on toward? He's always pressing on toward the kingdom of God, and he's not overcome with all the cares and concerns and the deceitfulness of this present life. He always has it on his mind of the coming of Christ and the life to come, and he's living each day in this present world, in this life, for the life to come. Versus the foolish people who only live for this present world, right? As long as they do some ritual, they say a prayer, they make the sign of the cross, they uh, go and they take communion, they get baptized, whatever, then I've made my preparation for the life to come. I don't even need to think about it anymore. I don't need to prepare. I don't need to have it on the forefront of my mind. I don't need to live every day as if the return of Christ is imminent, Right? I've already got my spot in heaven secured, and so I can live my days carefree, pursuing my own lust, pursuing my own pleasures, doing whatever I please. This is how many people are. They're not prepared for the coming of Christ. They don't take these things seriously. They just think that as long as I you know, made some profession, went through some ritual, everything is secure and fine, and now I can pass my days away doing whatever I want, and I don't have to live for the life to come. This is what a foolish person does, a, a false believer. They live a cavalier, carefree approach to the Christian life, right? If you can make it fine to church, that's fine. But if not, it's no big deal, right? We're all going to make it anyway. If you read your Bible, that's good and fine. But if you don't, it's no big deal. If you give yourself to daily prayers and meditation, that's fine. But you don't really have to because we're all going to make it in the end. And it doesn't matter if we sleep and take it easy. Everything is going to be all right. They do not use the means, right, that are necessary to enter into the kingdom of God for perseverance and endurance in the things of God. There's no godliness. There's no preparation. So this is the way they are. They're not living day to day for the life to come. They're just living for this present world. This is the difference between the wise and the foolish. Verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Here, the delay in the bridegroom, because it's late at night, they, begin, they get drowsy and they all begin to sleep, which is true even of the wise virgins, right? Even the best of believers have to give themselves in some regard to the cares of this life. They have to tend to their family. They have to tend to what they're going to eat. They have to sleep. They have to rest. There are certain things in this life that we must tend to while we wait for the coming of Christ. But even while they're asleep, they're still prepared, right? The wise ones, because they have the oil in their flask. The foolish ones, while they sleep, they're not prepared, right? This is the difference between the, between the two. So while we wait for Christ to come, 
we are to live for the life to come. But we must have some time and attention given to this life. And it is impossible for someone to meditate on the coming of Christ 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We don't have the capacity to do that, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there, the flesh doesn't mean the carnal flesh. The carnal flesh isn't weak. The carnal flesh is evil and opposed to the things of God. But even our flesh, just our body itself, is weak, right? We don't have a spiritual, powerful body. The body we now possess is filled with weakness, the natural body we have, and we don't have the capacity, no one has the capacity to read the Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's impossible. It's a, very difficult for someone to even read the Bible for an hour straight without their mind drifting here and there, or to pray for long periods of time without being drowsy or sleepy, or your minds being scattered and wandered. It's very difficult to do. And this is the way it is in this life. And that's what it is even for the wise ones. Even they sleep in a sense, but even while they sleep, because of the weakness of the flesh, they're still prepared for the coming of Christ. Though they have to give attention to the areas of this present life, they do not get weighed down by them. They're not preoccupied with this world. They're not overcome with this world so that they lose their fervor and their focus on the imminent return of Christ. The wise virgins are always prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. The fools, on the other hand, are overwhelmed with these things. They become overcome with the cares, with the pleasures of life, so that they fail to be prepared for the coming of Christ. Back to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 22. Matthew 13, 22. says, And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, that is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. There, it is specifically the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth. And this is the foolish virgins. They are overcome with sleep being the things of this present world. And they're not prepared for the coming of Christ. Then verse 6, 25, 6. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Here, when the bridegroom comes, it happens suddenly. And it happens quickly. There's no advance warning. It's just all of a sudden the bridegroom is here and now it's necessary to take the next step, right? To go on to what has been uh, established and what uh, is next in the coming of the bridegroom, which is going out to meet him. There isn't time. They don't announce an hour in advance. The bridegroom will be here in an hour. So everyone wake up and make sure you got everything that you need and make sure that you're ready for his coming. There is no warning given. It's just suddenly he appears. And when he appears, now you must be ready and prepared. And if you're not, at this point, it is too late. Right? And this is similar to what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, verse 42. 24, 42. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And then verse 50. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know. And this is how it will be with the coming of Christ. He will come suddenly, right? Suddenly, quickly. 
He will come in this way. And then when He comes, when He is revealed, then it's too late at that point to make any preparation for His coming. You're either prepared or you're not whenever He shows up. And if you're not prepared, then you're in trouble. So what is the solution? Be prepared, right? Be ready and stay ready for the coming of the Lord. Then verses 7 to 9. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Here, when the coming of the bridegroom, it arouses all of these virgins from their slumber, right? From their sleep. And now they must give attention to their duties, to what it is that they must do in order to be prepared for His coming, which is here uh, described in the trimming of their lamps. The foolish say to the prudent, give us some of your oil. The prudent ones are able to trim their lamps. They're ready for the coming of the bridegroom because they have the oil in their flask. So they're able to do that. But the foolish ones don't have any reserves and their lamps are going out and they don't have any oil to trim their lamps. And so they're asking the prudent ones, give us some of your oil so that we can also trim our lamps. And here, the revealing the appearing of Christ reveals the lack and uh, the scarcity of the five foolish virgins. When He appears, they now come to see and realize what they are lacking, their want, that they are destitute, that they are in need. But now it's too late because there is no remedy that is available to them. They did not take care during the favorable day, right? Which is a key. This also goes back to what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. When is the day of salvation? Today is the day of salvation. The second coming of Christ is not the day of salvation. At that point, the day of salvation comes to a close, and now it is the day of judgment. And now we will all stand before the coming of the Lord. And the time that we prepare for that day of judgment is during the day of salvation, during the favorable day while we wait for the Lord. This is the time in which we are now living. It is the time of our sojourning. It is a favorable day for us because Christ is being patient, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us would come to repentance and that we would all be prepared and make use of the many gifts and blessings that He has given to us for the building up of His kingdom, for our own benefit in the life to come. It is the time for us to work and to be faithful to the Master, and to do His will. Right? This is the time in which we now live. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Here, he's speaking of not receiving the grace of God in vain. Well, that's what's true of the foolish virgins. They receive the grace of God in a sense, not truly, right? not inwardly, not to salvation, but in a sense, they did receive the grace of God because 
they know the way of salvation. They've heard the gospel of Christ. They have some knowledge of the things of God. They've attached themselves to the church in this way. But they're foolish because they're not prepared. They did not make use of the day of salvation, of the acceptable time. And so they prove that the grace that they received was in vain. It did not result in good fruit. And what he doesn't want to be true of the Corinthian church, and what Christ doesn't want to be true of us, is that we would receive the grace of God in vain. Well, how do we not receive God's grace in vain? We are prepared for the coming of Christ. We prove ourselves to be faithful, wise servants by doing the will of our Master and making use and improvement upon the day of salvation given to us, the favorable day of the Lord. Also, in verse 9, the prudent tell the foolish they won't give them any of their oil because there won't be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Here, no one will get into heaven based upon the work of another, based upon the faith of another, right? Based upon another person's uh, faithfulness in what they have done, right? We will all stand based upon our own faith that has been given to us by Christ. We will all be judged according to our own deeds. And no one will get in based upon someone else. So whatever a person has, he cannot give to someone else. If he has true faith, he cannot pass it on to his children. Now he needs to pass it on in the sense that he needs to teach them and he needs to pray that God would work within them. But each one will be judged according to his own standard, right? According to what he has done. And in this case, the wise are prepared, the foolish are unprepared, but the preparation of the wise cannot be transferred over to the unpreparation of the foolish. The wise will be commended because they were ready, and the foolish will be rejected because they were not ready. Each one will give an account according to what he has done. Verse 10, While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. Here it simply means that when Christ returns, that He is going to enter into this eternal kingdom with His saints, right, with His children. And when He returns, our eternal destiny at that point is fixed and it is irrevocable. We are either a child of God or we are a child of the devil. We'll either enter into eternal joy with our master or we will enter into this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And whenever that day comes, it is fixed, it is irrevocable. The eternal destiny is certain and secure and it cannot be undone. In this case, the bridegroom goes in with the wise virgins. They enter in to the wedding feast. The other virgins who were not ready, they did not enter in with the bridegroom, but now they're knocking on the door saying, Lord, open up for us, but it's too late. It's too late. They've already gone in. And he says in verse 12, I do not know who you are. Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. This is the same as Matthew chapter 7. Though they claim to know him, he says, I don't know you, right? Which is the greater part of our salvation. Yes, it is true that we've come to know God, but why have we come to know God? Because He knows us. He comes to know us, 
and then we come to know Him. And if He doesn't know us, then we don't know Him. Even if we say we're a Christian, even if we say that Jesus is our Lord, even if we've been baptized or circumcised or whatever other ritual a person may go through, if they're a member of a church, none of those things matter if Christ does not know us as His sheep, as one of His people, He being our God and we being His people. This is what is necessary. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here is the same as this passage. The foolish virgins, the five, when they ask the Lord to open up for them, He responds that He doesn't know who they are. I don't know you, and you have no part in my kingdom. Then verse 13, the application. <clears throat> Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. The application is to be on alert, to be watchful, to be ready, to always be ready for the coming of the Lord, for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And how <clears throat> are we to be ready for His return? By being faithful to Him, by doing His will, by living this life for the life to come. This is back to 24. 24, Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Therefore, be on alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at their proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. The way that we are prepared, the way that we show that we are on alert is we're always doing his will. We commit our life to doing the will of our master and that this is what is true of us. Now, of course, <clears throat> in this life, none of us can do his will perfectly because of our sin, indwelling sin, because of the weakness of the flesh, we all stumble in many ways. However, there, we can, it can be said of us that our desire, what we long for, what we are striving for, in some measure and capacity, that we do desire to do the will of God. And we are trying to be faithful to Him and to be good, faithful slaves of Christ. And this is the way that we ought to live. All right, verse 14 to 30. Now another parable <clears throat> used to describe the second coming of Christ. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey." Here is an, another parable used to describe this, uh, the way it is now in this present life, 
Christ has gone on a long journey, and then what it'll be when He returns at the second coming. And then how it is that we are to live in this present life while we anticipate the coming of our Lord. Here, it's like a man about to go on a journey. Obviously, the man here is Christ. Christ is the one who is the head of the household. He is the one who is going on a long journey. And he has gone on a long journey. He's journeying all the way to heaven. And he's right now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He's gone to a distant country, to a heavenly country. But will he not come back one day for us? He is going to return to this country, right, one day. And when he does, then he will give his recompense according to what is revealed. So he's going on the journey. The man is Christ. The slaves are professing believers. These are people who claim to be his children, his slaves, his servants. We're not talking about pagans, idolaters, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. They have no association with Christ. Though, of course, they will be judged when Christ returns. But here specifically, he's talking about those who are his disciples, those who are his claiming to be his followers, believers, his children. These are the slaves. Then the absence is this time between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ, which is the present state of things that we find ourselves in now. The kingdom of heaven is among us now, but it's in this hidden way, right? It's not in its full and final form. The king has gone off to the distant country, and we are waiting for his return. And while we wait for his return, he has entrusted possessions to us, right? This is what he does. He entrusts his possessions to his slaves. One he gives five talents, another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Christ has entrusted very precious possessions to the church, to believers, right? To each and every one of us. The greatest of these is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has given the gospel to us and it is under our care and we are to make improvement on it. Not that we improve on the message, but we are to preach it and to teach it to others so that they come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to do this faithfully. He has entrusted this message of salvation to us so that we might tell it to others and speak it to others and speak of his word. So the precious truths of God's word that make a man wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is one of the possessions or gifts that Christ leaves to us in this present world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 to 7 describes that. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 to 7 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of un the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. This treasure is the light of the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel that God has revealed to us. And now that gospel message, that, that light, has been entrusted to earthen vessels. It's been given to us to be the mouthpiece, to be the messengers in this present world of the gospel of Christ. This is one of the possessions that Christ gives to His children, right? To those who claim who are believers and who say that they are His disciples. Also, He gives gifts. He gives gifts to men according to His will. These gifts are both natural and spiritual. Natural gifts are those things that we have uh, naturally, right? Some people uh, are very intelligent. Some people uh, have other gifts, the ability to be mechanical, to work on this or that. Uh, some people are very good at, you know, all sorts of various things uh, in this present world. So we all have natural giftings that have been given to us by God, right? These come from Him. But then also there are spiritual gifts that Christ gives to His church. And each one receives gifts according to the will of God, according to the will of Christ. Romans chapter 12 describes these. Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of, uh, more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in the body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So here, these are gifts that belong to Christ and he distributes in his church through the working of the Holy Spirit. And these gifts are given according to the grace of God, the grace given to us. These come from His grace. They're not our own. They are His possession. He gives them to us, and then we are to use them accordingly. And for whose benefit are they given? Are they for our own benefit? Are they for our own self-promotion, for our own ability to make money and have pleasures and comforts in this life? They're for His glory and then for the good of our brothers. This is why we are supposed to use them. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, teaches the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effect, but the same God who works all things in all persons. 
but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. So there, these gifts are distributed by the Spirit as He wills. And in verse 7, it's for the common good. Not for my own good, merely, but for the common good. For the common good of the church, of the body of Christ. So these spiritual gifts are these possessions that Christ entrusts to His slaves. They're not ours. These gifts don't belong to us. They don't come from us. Just as the possessions in this household, they're not the slaves' possessions. These are the master's possessions, and He entrusts them to the slaves so that they might use them to build up the master's house, His kingdom, not their own. Right? Not so that they can build their own petty kingdom for their own glory and self-honor. This is contrary to why Christ gives us His possessions and His gifts. So these natural and spiritual gifts are these possessions that Christ entrusts to us. Also, we would have to say that whatever we possess in this life, whatever material possessions that we have, where, do, where does all that come from? It doesn't come from us. While certainly it is true that we are to work, and in that regard, yes, uh, our possessions or the wealth that we have is a fruit or a reward for the work that we do, but all of it comes from God. He is the one who gives to us the ability to do the things that we do, to even make the money that we make. And then what about the place where we live? What if we all lived in Sudan? Would we be living in the houses that we live in now if we lived in that wretched place or North Korea or any of these other miserable places in the world? No, we live in a very prosperous land where we have an abundance of possessions and goodness and kindness from God. And none of that is based upon anything that we've done. Did any of us choose where we would be born and at what time we would be born? No. All of this comes to us from who? It all comes from God. Our very possessions, everything we have is from God to be used for His glory and for His kingdom. Our very life that we have. He is the one who gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things, according to Acts chapter 17. So even our very life that we have has been given to us by God. So who are we to use it for? For His benefit, right? It is His possession. He has entrusted it to us, and we are to use it for His glory. Everything we have, our children, these are possessions that God has given to us. And we are to use them to improve them for the building up of His kingdom, not our own. Right? Everything that we have has been given to us by God for His glory and for the building up of His kingdom. And this is the way that we ought to be. Right? Whatever has been entrusted to us by God is not for our own pleasure or for our own glory but to be used for His glory and for His kingdom. And here also notice in verses 14 and 15, He gives to each according to His own ability. 
right? He doesn't give to all of these servants the exact same amount. The one gets five talents, the other two and the other one, according to their own ability. And this is the way that Christ does in His church as well. Not everyone has the same measure of faith. Not everyone has the same spiritual gifts. Not, not everyone has the same amount of possessions. Not everyone has the same amount of children. God gives according to His own will, according to the ability of the person. So not all have the same gift and not all have the same measure. But God assigns to each according to His will. And then our responsibility is to be faithful with what God has given to us. And not to say, well, look, I was given five, so I must be better than all these people. No, I will be judged based upon what God has given to me, not based upon what He's given to you. And you won't be judged based upon what He's given to me. You'll be judged based upon what He's given to you. And if He has given to someone uncommon abilities, uncommon faith, well, then they'll be held to a higher standard. Then they have all the more reason to use those things for the glory of God. And if one rises and comes to a position of more prominence, well, then he will be judged accordingly, all right, according to that. And if someone has a lowly position, then he will be judged accordingly. But each of us will be judged based upon what? Our faithfulness. Are we faithful with what God has entrusted to us? This is all that matters. We should not be constantly concerning ourselves. Certainly, we should be concerning ourselves with one another in terms of the common good in our love for one another, in our desire for others to be faithful. But we shouldn't have this eye of envy, of jealousy, of comparing ourselves and trying to promote ourselves over and above one another. We should be chiefly concerned with, am I being faithful to Christ? This is what we should concern ourselves with, right? So we should not neglect the gifts that Christ has given to us. Each one will be judged according to his own ability, according to what God has given. Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 48. Luke 12, 48 says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they have entrusted much, of him they will ask, all the more. So where much is given, much is required. The one received five talents, so much is required of him. More is required of him than the one that received two and the one that received one. But something is required of all of them, right? Because all of them have received something. So they're all required to use what has been given to them for the benefit and the promotion of their master and his household. 16 and 17, the faithful ones. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Here, the faithful slaves, notice, when did they do this? <clears throat> it says immediately. As soon as they were entrusted with these things, they immediately went out and began to use them in the way the master had designed for this intended purpose, to build up the household of the master. The one with the five went and traded and gained five more. So now he has 10. The one with the two went and in the same way traded, and now he has two more, now he has four. So they have used these resources, these possessions, entrusted to them by their master, and they are increasing 
the estate of their master, his household, his wealth, right? His possessions are increasing in these things. Now, of course, in this, and as we think of this in terms of what is happening with us, we might think, well, what if we fail? But who is the one that gives us the strength and the ability to do this? Right. right? So while Christ entrusts us with these things, and yes, He does go on a journey, but does He leave us by ourselves? He gives us His Spirit. And His Spirit is the one who causes us to be faithful so that as long as we're doing what He has required of us, we cannot fail. We will always be successful and we will bring improvement to His household. We will bring glory to Him if we are doing the will of Christ by the power of the Spirit. So it's impossible for us to make a bad investment when we're using these things in the right way. We will always be successful because He is the one who gives us the ability to do so. He's the one who is empowering and equipping the faithful slaves to use the possessions He's entrusted to them to bring glory to Himself. So He does that for us. Then verse 18, But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Here the unfaithful slave... He neglected to use the gift that was entrusted to him, the possessions given to him. No use of it. Also, by burying it in the ground, what else does he not have to do? He has to do no work, right? The others are out working. They're being diligent. They're being shrewd. They're trading. They're doing these things that are necessary to make improvement and to gain. But the one that buries it in the ground, he doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is dig a hole, put it in the ground, and now he can do what? Whatever he wants, have a good time until the master comes back. He doesn't have to give any thought or any attention to doing those kinds of things. Now he can indulge himself. He doesn't have to be about the master's business. He can indulge himself. He's an earthly-minded man. Then verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. A long time goes by and the master returns. And now... He's going to settle accounts with the slaves. And this corresponds to the day of judgment, when each one will give an account of himself to God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us will stand before His judgment seat, and we will be judged and either punished or rewarded according to what Christ reveals. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Romans 2, verses 6 to 11. And of course, in all of these, it always is the grace of God within us that gives us the ability to persevere, to be faithful, to be industrious, to bring glory and honor to Christ. But He's using it in this way to cause us to be alert, to be watchful, to mind us of our duty and our responsibility. These are the means used by God to cause us to persevere. The, the reality of the day of judgment, right? The knowledge that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that there will be punishments and rewards that will be distribu distributed during that time. These are the things that God uses to cause the believer to persevere, right? He's the one that's making us persevere, but He uses means to accomplish these things. So we're never standing at the day of judgment on our own by ourselves, on our own merit, and our own ability to work. 
we'll always stand on that day based upon who? Based upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And then even the works that are brought forward by which we are judged, who is the one that gave us the ability to do those good works? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything for us comes from Him. But we will be judged in this way. Right? We will be judged and we will either be rewarded or punished, which is another grace of God. He's the one that gives us the ability to do all of this, but then He also rewards us for what He's done in us. This is how kind and gracious He is to His servants. Right? He doesn't have to reward anyone. This is our duty to obey Him. And yet, He is such a good, kind, gracious Master that He rewards His slaves. Where does that ever happen in this world? That the slave is rewarded for doing what he was supposed to do and given the joy of his master? But this is what Christ does for us. This is how good he is. Romans 2, verses 6 to 11. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. This is verse 19. He is going to settle accounts with his slaves. There will be a judgment that will take place. And then these deeds will be revealed, whether one was faithful or whether one was a wicked, lazy slave. 20, 20 to 23. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Here, the account of the faithful slaves. They are commended by their master for their faithfulness because of the faithfulness by which they discharged and used the possessions, the gifts that were given to them by their master. This is what will happen to the true believer on the day of judgment. They will be commended by Christ by being good, wise, faithful slaves. Again, this is a great honor to have Christ say to you, well done, good and faithful slave even though He's the one that made us into a slave of His, and He's the one that equipped us for the entirety of our life to be able to do anything that is good and wise and faithful. It all comes from Him, and yet He gives to us, He confers this great honor, this glory to His slaves, as if it came from us, as if it originated in us, even though it came from Him. This is the way that God works in us. He does it, and yet here... Though, of course, ultimately it always ends in praise to God. It does, they do receive a commendation from their master because of their faithfulness. And this is the same that Jesus says, that if we confess him before men, then he will confess us before his father 
and before His holy angels. But if we deny Him before men, He will deny us before His Father and before His holy angels. <clears throat> Is that not a great honor? To be commended by Christ, right? Before the Father and before the angels. That this servant here, this man, he was a faithful and wise servant. He did my will while he was on earth also. Do any of the slaves perfectly do his will? Do any of us ever do that? But notice here, they are commended for being faithful slaves, right? They're commended in this way, even though it is a mixture of faithfulness and unfaithfulness for us in this life, we still will be commended by Christ because all of our sins are taken away. They're taken away by the blood of Christ. And then we stand approved in His sight. Also notice the eternal responsibilities that are given to these slaves and the honor that is given to them is in conjunction with their earthly faithfulness. Right? The faithfulness of this life, right? this is the testing time to determine what will be entrusted to us <clears throat> in the life to come. If we're not faithful now in this life with these meager things, then why would God entrust to us greater things in the life to come? Right. He will not do so. So our faithfulness now will be what is used to determine the responsibilities, the honor, the glory that we will receive in the life to come. Luke 19, if we go to Luke 19, verses 11 to 19, this is the parallel account in Luke's Gospel. Luke 19.11 says, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So He said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And He called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities." The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. He said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then it goes on to the one who hid it in a handkerchief. But here the point being, <clears throat> they were entrusted with a mina in this life, but in the lives to come, what are they entrusted with? Cities. Right? You were given a very small thing in this life, and then because you proved yourself faithful in this life with this small thing, now you're going to be set over something much larger, something much greater. Here it was just Amina. Now you're going to be over 10 cities, something which is a great, much graver responsibility. The Amina, the talent, right? These correspond to the gifts, the possessions that Christ gives to us in this present life. The city responds to the blessings that will come to us in the life to come. This life is a testing ground, and what God gives to us in this life, no matter how great that gift may seem to us, is nothing. It is very small in comparison to what He will give, what He will distribute to His children in the life to come. 
but we must prove ourselves faithful now. Be faithful in the little things that God has given to us now, and then in the life to come, He will entrust to us greater things, even greater things then. This also corresponds to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, verses 10 to 13, Jesus makes this comparison in relationship to money. Luke 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of which is what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here, the wealth is the very little thing. And if we're not faithful with these little things in this life, then why would God entrust to us true riches, eternal riches in the life to come? When we know whatever we have in this life is temporary. It is only momentary for this present life. But what we will receive in the life to come is eternal. Well, that's the testing ground. If you're not faithful in the little, then why would He entrust to you much greater things in the life to come. So, this is why we have to be faithful to Christ. We must do His will and be faithful to Him. And again, this faithfulness never originates in ourselves. It all comes from the grace of God. So whatever measure of faithfulness, whatever ability to do His will and to bring glory and honor to Him, all of it comes to us from Christ. What do you have that you have not received? It all originates from Him. Okay, then verses 24 and 25. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Here, the account of the unfaithful slave. He uses lame excuses to justify his own laziness. The, the fact that he did absolutely nothing. And who is he blaming for his laziness? He's blaming Christ, right? He's blaming his master, saying, it's because you're such a harsh and severe master that I didn't do this. Well, if you knew this to be true of him, then why weren't you more diligent, right? That ought to cause you to be even more diligent to make sure that you are using these things in a way that is consistent with His will. But also, is our Lord Jesus Christ a hard man? Does He reap where He does not sow and gather where He scatters no seed? No. These things aren't true of Christ. They're true in this man's mind of Christ. But for a true believer, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And He is a good and a kind master. He wasn't hard with these other servants. He was very gracious and very generous with them, rewarding them for what they're supposed to do as their natural duty. And yet he gives them great honor and reward. So this man has a skewed view of Christ, and this is what is true of unbelievers. They don't understand who God is. They hate God. They see God as a monster instead of seeing Him as a loving Father who is kind and gracious 
and just in all of his dealings. Verse 26, His master answered him and said, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Right, you say that this is what you believe to be true of me. Well, you're self-condemned then. If this is what is true of me, then why did you not be careful to make sure you made wise use of what I entrusted to you? But no, he wasn't like that at all. He says, you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Right, at least go put it in the bank. And at least there, you're going to get something for it. You're going to get some interest buried in the ground. You're losing money, especially if you're living in the era of Joe Biden inflation, right? Like we have today, you're losing 10% of it every year. So it's going to be worth nothing hardly when the master comes back, at least in the bank, you're getting some measure of interest that is causing it to compound somewhat. And it's going to at least benefit the master in that way. But even that he couldn't do. Even that little bit of effort. I mean, how much effort does it take to walk down to the bank and put your money in it? They're happy to take your money. They just don't want to give it back to you, right? They're happy to take your money whenever, at least do that. At least do some consideration. A little bit of diligence would have given the master some profit for what he had entrusted to him. Then verse 28, Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away from him. Whatever gifts, whatever blessings, whatever possessions God bestows upon a man in this life will be taken away in the life to come for a wicked man. Whatever we have in this life given to us by God, if we are not true believers and if we are not faithful servants, all of those blessings, all of the good gifts of God will be taken away and they will not transfer to the life to come. Because in the life to come, the wicked and unbelieving, they will receive no goodwill from God. They will receive none of God's goodness, but only His what? Only His wrath, His burning indignation. Only the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, poured on them for all eternity. They will get eternal torment, and they will know nothing of the goodness and kindness of God. Take it away from Him. He doesn't, he's not worthy of it. So that will be stripped away of him. And this is true. Whatever talents, whatever possessions, whatever blessings, every good and perfect gift comes from above. It all comes from God and is given to the children of man in this life. And if we are unbelieving and wicked, all of that will be taken away on the day of judgment. And we will only be left with eternal misery and torment. Only the wrath of God, no more of the goodness of God given to us. Then verse 30, throw out that worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A worthless slave is what he's called, right? What value is a slave that does not do the will of his master? What value is a slave that doesn't work for the benefit of his master, for the building up of his master's kingdom, who doesn't obey him? and do what he tells him to do. He's worthless. He's not a slave at all. He's a slave to his own lust, his own desires, his own sin, right? Christ isn't his master. Sin is his master. He is a worthless slave. So what does he deserve? 
a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is the description Christ is using of hell, the lake of fire, the fiery furnace. This is what he will receive. Even though he claims to be a slave and in some ways associates with the other slaves, there will be this distinction, this separation made on the day of judgment. And that's what we'll turn to next week, which is this teaching about the coming day of judgment and the separating of the sheep from the goats.